Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. My guest on this episode is a musician who's recorded and toured with Elvis Costello and the attractions from the TKO Horns, among several very fine groups. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Jeff Blythe. Hey, Stu, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm really good, Jeff. How are you? Very good, very good. Good. And settling into life on the English Riviera? Uh, settling in, yes, on the, the uh, lovely rainy Cornwall. <laughs> You get no sympathy from up north for that kind of stuff, I'm no, afraid. Well, I know you want. I've got a lot of family in Lancashire, actually. Right, okay. always, it never, never stops right now, <laughs> Yeah. Well, this has been a busy time for you, what with coming back to the UK. And also, you've got new yeah. music out as well with um, with the Samsonite Gypsies. Yeah, I've got a new album that came out last week. Um, just out, you know, uh, Samsonite Gypsies, you know, available for downloads. Really, really pleased with it. It's a great job. It took us two years to get the whole thing together. I recorded it in North Carolina mainly, but I'm very pleased. Yeah, well, I like um, Sweet Charlotte, the first one that you released off it. I think it's a great track, isn't it? Yeah, it's very, very jazzy. So no rhythm section. So that was just that, that track. Actually, was just it was it was jammed in the studio. Basically, man, a fantastic singer, you know, uh, R and B, you know, this girl, female R and B. Uh, soul, soul jazz singer. She just went in and put put the improvised the thing, and we just went in. Actually, first the guitar player went in, Danny Delapierre went in and put the thing down, and she just jammed the vocal part on top of that, and then I went in and put the sax down later. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Actually, it does have a kind of live improvised feel about it. Is that the way that you guys work together? It was for that album. Yes, I mean every every album's different, but. Um, yeah, this one. I mean, you have to let Mum do her thing first because you're never quite sure what she's going to do. And so, it, like, it, it didn't work. If I went in first and put a sax part down, then I sort of always have to come back and change it. So it was like, I go first. But yeah, it was it was very much sort of improvised on the spot. A lot of the stuff was on. You know, that was completely improvised. The other tunes were actually had a basis. You know, written by Pat McGuire, who's uh, the male lead singer. Mm. Bit. And um, but then we sort of improvised over that and jumped over that. Yeah. Made it what it was. Yeah. A friend of mine introduced me to your previous album just before we went into lockdown. So I, I kind of now associate it with long walks around the neighbourhood before we had to right. get back after yes. our hour, you know. Right. <laughs> An album's a good length, actually, for your designated hours walk that the government would allow you back in the... Uh... <laughs> that's, that's right. I forgot about it. Yeah, I wasn't here for that. No, you, in the, you know, before, um, you know, that during the lockdown and you had... Um, you had limited, allowed time out of your house. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Gosh. Seems a while ago yeah. now. Hopefully we don't get back to that at any yeah, point. Yeah, hopefully we don't. Um, oh, well, good. Well, I look forward to listening to the, to the new record in full, and I'm, I'm sure people listening in will be really interested to check well, it yeah, out as well. Yeah, uh, you can't listen to it on streaming, but it's downloadable on all the usual, you know, Amazon, Apple Music, etc. Who is 
Well, let's wind the clock back um, a fair way now. To it when is you, a fair way. It it's is. A fair way. Uh, to when you worked with Elvis and the attractions. Um, so obviously, when I was a real young Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So punch the clock era, early 80s. Um, before you worked with him, had your paths crossed a lot when you were with Dexys Midnight Runners? Did you and the attractions kind of run around the circuit? Never did, actually, no. Um, we usually, some of the people we hung out with, sort of more the same people doing the same kind of circuit, with like the special as a selector, that that sort of thing, you know, matters you bumped into and such. But never Elvis, funnily enough. Um, never had him met him before, before we did this. But having said that, that was kind of, it was through Dexys and, and his, you know, him deciding that, that he was, uh, wanted to do, because, you know, he likes to do something different with every album. That's one of the things about him. He like picks like an approach or... Um, like a feel, whatever, you know, for each different album he does. It's just one of the things that makes him unique, I think. And um, so he decided he was going to do one with a sort of big bandy feeling, hence wanted like sort of horn section and also, you know, with the girls, you know, with the, having the three girls on the, the back of Vargas and such. So he knew of, um, you know, Dexys was famous, or the original Dexys were like runners with the Soul Rebels album was famous for its, its brass section, you know, of which I was the arranger. So um, he thought that's where the best come. And that's how he got the gig, so to speak. Yeah. What was your sort of impression of Elvis's music before that point? Were you a fan of what you'd heard? I always liked his music. I mean, I wasn't, you know, sort of like a huge, huge into Elvis fan. I mean, you know, I liked it. I mean, talking about, you know, saxophone players, somebody came out of like Soft Machine and, and Weather Report mainly, you know, and soul music. Because before, before I, you know, before I joined Texas, I was playing with Gino and Washington, the first professional thing I ever did, you know, it was like mm. the old soul stuff. So I came out much more of a sort of soul and a, and a sort of jazz fusion background anyway. Mm. So how was the approach made to you and the other guys in the Horns about getting involved with, well, you toured with him and you, and you did the recording for Punch the Clock as well. How did that right, come about? Well, my, my good friend, Big Jimmy, a trombone player, was actually the one they got hold of. Um, he actually sort of, you know, got the gig as, as sort of... Um, I bumped into him on a train. On, on the train, I was doing a soundtrack for the BBC, like, like a low-budget soundtrack, funnily enough, and... Um, so I was going down to, um, from Birmingham to London on the train to do some mixing for it. I was walking down a corridor and coming the other way was Jim and I hadn't seen him for a while. And I said, hey, Jeff, you know, we're just doing this thing with Elvis Costello and uh, needed a sack, so there you go. And was that to tour first or was that to go into the studio? What was the no, chronology the, of the that? the whole thing was, I don't know if the, again, Elvis does that with every arm, but he certainly did this with this. It was the, the um, we, first thing we do is go in, and make the album and then tour for the rest of the year, mm. you know, to promote the album, essentially. There was always, um, there was also a lot of extra work because when we did go on the road, we weren't just doing the songs did on the album. And we were doing a lot of, you know, we were playing for like, when he does long sets, we were doing like two and a half hour sets and we'd play for probably an hour, 45, two hours out of that time. Mm. There'd be a short break in the middle when we weren't playing. So we had to, um, and Jim did great arrangements for that. Um, do a lot of the songs that we weren't, you know, we never played on, like a lot of Elvis songs we didn't put on arrangements to. Mm -hmm. And were they songs that you were familiar with, or did you have to do a little bit of uh, bit of homework on some of those? Well, they were mainly songs. I say Big Jimmy did all the arrangements for that, but they were all pretty much all songs I was familiar with anyway. Yeah. 
Great results, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll talk about some of the live performances in a minute. But if we talk about um, Punch the Clock, first of all, recorded in early 83 and released in August of right. that year, Elvis brought in Clive Langer and Alan Wynn Stanley to produce yes. that one. Did you get a sense that he was looking for a new direction and that they were there to do something a bit more commercial and to get some hits from it? Um, I don't know if they were there to do something more commercial and get some hits from it. I, I know actually that there was a time during that recording when Elvis was a little like, a little, oh no, what have we done? Sort of wondering if it's going too commercial. But I think, I mean, I, I you know, don't know the actual facts, but I think um, Langer and Stanley, I mean, I think he'd worked with that before, has he not? Like, I don't know, other stuff? Yeah, I think Elvis had produced Clive before, and um, yeah, right. And, um, this was the first full-length album production by them. It was okay, fine. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was good working with them, and um, I'd say from from our point of view, we weren't, you know, in our job, we aren't particularly thinking about it other than the fact we were trying to sort of do the sort of big band sort of approach to it um, with thick arrangements stuff like that. I mean, in terms of whether it was more popular, less popular, stuff like that, it was, it was like, I don't know. Well, we, we weren't really thinking about it. I'm sure Elvis Clive and Alan. Yeah. Well, Elvis said, I was still writing most of my songs at the piano and almost all of them were melancholy ballads. Clive cajoled me into picking up the guitar for at least the purpose of writing some more lively material. And then how would Elvis present those songs to you in the studio? Has he, has he got a demo recorded or would you actually get like a little live run through from him in the studio? No, no um, the basis of the songs had already been put down. But right. um, in terms of what we were going to do on them, a lot of it was done actually. Would, uh, Clive, Clive would come and sit at the piano and we'd stand around. So we'd have a basic idea maybe of what we were going to um, approach, like for the arrangements and such like that. But we'd just sort of jam them out and say, oh, we can do this, we can do that, and sort of worked it out as we went along. Play, play with the piano. Hmm. And what's Elvis's involvement in those little get-togethers around the piano? Is he is he with you, or is he happy to kind of leave you and Clive to work? No, on he, I don't remember him being with us really right. during that time. Right. No, I'm not, I, I think basically, sort of, so what would have been done is would you said, you know, because we didn't also do every track on that album either, so they decided which ones we were going to do, and it's, and it's an interesting story about that. We'll get to that later. And then the ones we, we went to do, said, okay, well, this would be the basic approach. So once the basic approach has been decided, then, uh, you know, we sit with our instruments around the piano and sort of, okay, this is what we want to achieve and how do we actually turn this into notes and the parts we're going to play. Hmm. And Clive and Alan were known for their recording technique was that they would layer up the tracks, though not necessarily right, live exactly. performances in the studio. So that was your experience yeah. as well. Did did you ever get to perform live in the studio with the attractions, or was it always a case of adding no, on no. to the basic stuff? No, no, it was it was never done like that. It was all like the layer, which is you know the usual way of doing things actually. So the album starts with Let Them All Talk, and that is a proper album opener, isn't it? It's a real foot in the door. It gives you a real indication of what's going to unfold over the next three quarters of an hour. Is that one that you look back on fondly? 
It is one I look back on fondly, and so was making a video for that. It's something I look back on fondly because it's really funny. We made the video for that uh, in Minneapolis. We were on tour already by that time, and so we took a few days off, off there. Well, one day, actually. It had to be done in 24 hours to make a video for that. I remember the director's name was Chuck. I can't remember his last name. but uh, So it was done in a theatre, in balconies and all that, and... Um, it was well catered. It was black and white video. Mm. And so we were actually made up to look like the old black and white sort of film people. So if you don't know, if you don't do, to do effective filmmaker for black and white or back in the, in the, in the silent movie days, they did outrageous like big blue cheeks and sort of red lips and sort of because color wasn't seen, but it was the only way of getting that kind of contrast. If you look at that video, You'll see some sort of over-contrasted sort of faces that you'll see from from silent movies. So that was the approach to that. Right. And um, but it was done in one day. And of course, the last things they did were us, the brass, right? So we were in there at probably like seven o'clock in the morning, and between the various nice substances and it being very very well catered, and I think we got to start filming at eleven o'clock at night. And if you look at us in that, our eyes are closed. I mean, my eyes are closed. I can stand and we can jump around and stuff like that, but I can't keep our eyes on. So you're honest with doing this completely closed eyes. But, yeah, that's one of those little moments. Yeah. Oh, it's funny because you don't come across many musicians and say, I really enjoyed making the video for it. Everyone seems to sort of talk about that being the chore side of it after making the well, music. It was a chore, but that's what I'm saying. The thing is, to keep us happy, they, they catered it, but it was like usual catered like food or whatever, but it was brilliant. So it like, you know, smoked ourselves, ate ourselves and drank ourselves stupid before, before like, we'd been you know, working at five o'clock in the afternoon. It's one thing, 11 o'clock at night. And we were just asleep on our feet. <laughs> and for the song itself, does Elvis talk to you about what the song's about or anything like that for you to get into no. his headspace? Or you just you no. just treat it as this is the track and we need to put our stamp on it? Yeah, that was it. it was the meaning of, meaning of lyrics was never discussed or anything like that. But I think that's most people are like that anyway. Most songwriters are like that. Is he walking to the run? Isn't this the greatest thing? Everyone on up and know that he can catch ya. Isn't this the greatest thing? Punch the clock. He boxes Isn't this ever. the greatest thing? You'll be young. Isn't this the greatest thing? Isn't this the greatest? Isn't this the greatest thing? Isn't this the greatest thing? An interesting comment Elvis made about the greatest thing is that he was talking about the horn arrangements on that one and that he'd worked in a reference to the Joe Loss Orchestra with a quote from In The Mood. Was that a conscious decision going into the recording or did that just sort of come about during the during the sessions? No, no, that, that was a decision. That's one of, out of any song I thought about you know, sitting around the piano and, and uh, sort of working it out with uh, with Clive. Like, think that's that's a song out of any. I particularly remember doing that too, with that in mind. That was the, also the one song that we did more. Like we put clarinet on that and baritone on that. Work. You know, we had a four, the four-piece brass session was basically two saxes, a trumpet, and a trombone. 
And every other track was two saxes, trumpet, and trombone. But this one, we sort of double laid up, laid up a lot more with the same with clarinet on that and baritone sax on it as well to make it really sort of old school big bandy, like like the Joe Lost type of thing. So yeah, that was a conscious decision. Yeah, that's a great song, isn't it? The greatest thing. It is. It is. Yeah, it's. it's I think probably my well, I said one of my three favourites of that album. Yeah, and we're going to put these, uh, the songs we're talking about, we'll stick them onto our playlist for this uh, season of the podcast. And normally ask my guests to pick one from each decade of Elvis's career, but as you worked with him, Jeff, so concentrated in that period, we're, we're going to break the rules today and just put on some songs from um, that you appeared on both live and in the studio. So uh, the greatest thing in Let Them All Talk, we'll put them on. Our playlist is called Ashtrays of Emotion, which is appropriate because that comes from this record, and, uh, and that's on the website and on Spotify as well. Yeah, I love The Greatest Thing. It's... Um, it's almost, it's the essence of the album for me, that track. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got, like, you, you're right what you said. It's, it is the essence of the album. And that's in my way, um, you know, especially from our point of view as being, like, the, the brass players, from, I think. And, and uh, you're right what you said. It was, yeah, you know, Glenn Miller through Joe Lars kind of thing. You know, hence using the clarinet and such, which is characteristic sounds. Mm. Would Elvis bring in other records or anything like that? We know he's got such an encyclopedic knowledge of music and a love of so many different forms of music. Would he ever bring in stuff that he's heard elsewhere and said, this is the kind of vibe that I'm looking for on the take? No, no, I know he does that when to write. He gets inspiration from, you know, I know he's famous for, like, you know, Cyclopedia of music and then gets inspiration from that, but no, we we that wasn't just you know didn't come to us at all. But that was you know would be done beforehand. Another song we're going to put on the playlist that you performed on on this album is TKO Boxing Day. Came from the song, yeah, because we actually we didn't have a name. So, what are we going to call it? What are we going to call it? Everyone's discussing it. So, I, oh, I know how about the TKO horns? So, we just came out from that, yeah, yeah. This is one of those songs where Elvis really goes to town with the wordplay, isn't it? Um, they put yes, the num into yes, number, yes. they put the cute into cutie, the slum into slumber, and the boot into beauty. That was the real, yeah, the real yeah. height of that sort of lyrical witticism, wasn't it? For him, it is, yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. I think some people, you can find reviews where people are quite put off by that. And I think Elvis has made reference himself that he thought he was perhaps doing it a little bit too much in those early days and then backed off from it a little bit. I must say, I I always quite raise a smile on some of those lines when they come up. They certainly don't spoil the listening experience for me. No, me neither. You're listening to Dangerous Amusements, a piece of stale bread curling on the luncheon counter of life. When you're doing the album, do you already know that you're going to tour the album? Was that the agreement yes. going into it? Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, we knew. We, we, but we signed on for a year, basically. Right. I mean, yeah, we, we knew it would be the whole year, then it would be the tours, and we knew after that it would be the end of things. So, yeah. Mm. And you talked about there the long sets that you did on the tour. What yeah. was the process there? Did you have an input into the songs that you did, or was that very much what Elvis fancied doing? Um, no, I think, well, just, we'd had, obviously we'd had to do rehearsals, like, you know, um, with the whole band before we went on tour. So we knew what songs we were doing, that had been decided. Um, we had what songs we did it. I don't know if we necessarily did all the songs every night or the songs would change some nights, but you know, we had the repertoire of what we, what we had arranged it for because there was nothing else we could do. So we, we did those. And you know, the sets might vary slightly every night, but essentially it's pretty much the same. Obviously, you've got tracks from Punch the Clock, which you take on tour, but then there's Elvis's back catalogue to approach as well. Yeah. And I know he's spoken very um, very highly of the way that you added to songs like Possession and Watch Your Step that he'd done previously. Right. What was the approach to sorting out the arrangements for that? Were you just trying to replicate what's on the record with horns, or was there a bit of leeway to do something a little bit more creative? Right. Well, my, my friend Jim did most of the arrangements for that. And, um, and uh, yeah, I think it's sort of he, he took sort of what was on the records and translated that in, into the horn parts. Mm. You talked about your love of Stax and soul era music right. earlier. And obviously some of those songs that you were doing, particularly the Get Happy era songs, are very much right. referencing that type of music. So with songs like Possession, did you kind of identify with them because that's where Elvis was sort of referencing in the songs? Um, it's, it's hard to say, really. I mean, I suppose, yes. I mean, in a sense, the whole thing was sort of melded between, you know, where we were coming from, what he was doing anyway. I mean, that's why he wanted us to be doing that. So I mean, you never consciously think about that. It just it just works and you're playing it. Mm. And it worked out. There was never There was never any sort of jarring sort of trying you know trying to shoehorn any anything in trying to shoehorn like a, a sound or or an approach with with the brass that, that wasn't working naturally it, it seemed very natural it seemed to fit very well yeah well it brings some of those songs to life doesn't it i mean i mentioned possession i think that's the one that you hear that yeah. and you think oh that that's like almost the definitive sort of arrangements and version of that song was a bit of um, nattering about maybe doing a live album right. because because some of the songs sounded so great you know with the brass on like it, it um oh, how, how would you put this it sort of made you made a different sort of look with them mm -hmm. um and, and they sort of you know it might even though they'd be great songs that are own right and um it sort of made an extra dimension, I suppose. It made, you know, a different sort of way of, of looking at them. It would have been really interesting. It was really interesting to hear them like that. And not only that, was um, one of the best songs off the album was um, Every Day I Write the Book, which we didn't play on on the album, but we did 
brass live on it. Mm. And it was like, oh man, we should know, we should have always had the horns on it. You know, really? In the studio. It was a real shame that we didn't. And that was only that was only simply because it wasn't one of the songs they thought, oh, we should have yeah. brass to in the first place. But having heard it, they knew they should have, so. Oh, you know, I, yeah, I would love a live album from that period because we've obviously it's yeah. before my time, unfortunately. We should have done one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we should have done one. It's, you know, just really interesting, different, different look, and you know, different life about you know about that material. Yeah. So we've got a few live takes there on one of the reissues of Punch the Clock. So we do get we get a little bit of a taster for those of us who weren't, you know, able to see that uh, one. What do you but, got? <laughs> let's just have a look. I've I've got the album. There's Possession, Watch Your Step, oh, Secondary Modern as well, wasn't there? And there was that. Yeah, um, yeah Secondary Modern, that's right. Yeah, and the, the mix-up of Backstabbers and King Horse as well, which is really oh, cool. That, that was, yeah, that was really good, yeah. That's um, that sort of little... Once you can like, yeah, we'll just run that song, yeah. yeah. It's a long time ago, I was forgetting something about myself. <laughs> it's been a few years. It has, yeah. <laughs> and what was the audience reaction? Because obviously this was a slightly different setup for Elvis and the attractions. They've got you guys, oh, they've got Aphrodisiac um, as well. Yeah, and, and they were great. I love those girls. Mm. You know, and the, but the audience was great. I mean, I think this is one of the probably um, best live tours, you know, one of the biggest ones he did. I mean, it was a huge tour, we played really big venues, big, big, um, really big audiences. The audiences loved it. I, you know, haven't been, hadn't done other than I was Costello tours when we weren't on. So I mean, I've you know, got them to compare it by, but it was certainly a really, really successful tour. Yeah. And what about life on the road with the attractions? How was that? It was great. I had a great time. I and mean, we did a, a whole of, you know, um, North America, Europe and, and England, you know, lasted, lasted a whole year after we'd finished recording. And um, I think it was the thing out of all the tours, it's one we spent the most money on as well. So we had, you know, had um, it was great. We had a brilliant life. So we stayed in great hotels and we even had our own tour bus for the horn section. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> in the States. Yeah. But it, but it was really good. It was, it was really good. Um, you know, just playing that for a whole year and just really enjoyed it. Mm. And I assume Elvis is normally to be found when he's not on stage writing a million more songs somewhere on the tour bus or in the hotel? On the tour bus, he might do that. I know his own tour bus. In, the, in America, anyway, in, in uh, Europe, he's like a regular coach, mm. you know, which you'll all be sitting in. But, you know, American tour buses, the million, millions of miles you have to do there because you know, the places. I know he had, a, he had a little writing suite and tape recorder on his own bus. What he did on that, I have no idea, because we went on. <laughs> and would any of those brand new songs make the way straight into the set, or was it a little bit more um, no, sort of arranged no, what you were no. going to do? No, no, no. There's, um, the set was from the same songs, and so the set might vary slightly, although very little. Um, and so there was, um, you know, um, if you like, a cache of songs that, that was done. Um, nothing else came into it. And that was it, you know. Yeah. What was it like musically performing live with the attractions? You know, we hear so much about the dynamic in in the four of them. What was that like musically to mesh in with them? Um, it was very easy. I mean, I, I you know got on very well with everybody personally. Um, and everyone is really good musicians, and it, it had been designed like that. And um, you know, it had happened very. I mean, I think definitely as you're going through almost a year of touring. I mean, it was from whatever might have felt sort of a little awkward and rusty on the, on the first day. I think the first gig was in Hammersmith and last was in Hammersmith. One was the Palais, one was the Odeon. 
I'm not quite sure which way around it was. I think the first gig was the Palais and the last gig was the Odeon night before Christmas. But as the, honestly, as the tour goes on, it got smoother and smoother and smoother. And it was, you know, we were 10 times better a few months into it than we were at the beginning. Another song for our playlist from Punch the Clock is The World and His Wife, a song that Elvis says originally was a solemn folk song about a drunken family gathering and then with your help in the TKO horns it turns into a bilious knees up it was that was a lot of fun I mean, that was yeah it was just big knees up that's what it was it's a great description of it I, you know it's funny lyrics and um, it's just something you have a lot of fun with that song no other way of describing it really it's very you know very straightforward yeah big knees up as you say yeah the little girl you dangle on your knee without mishaps stirs something in your memory and something in your lap. It's a, a bit dark. I suppose it is, yeah. I mean, I, I always think of just the funny stuff, you know, going on holiday to Tarama Salata. Yeah. <laughs> crack me up at the time. Walking yeah. <laughs> on Another really interesting project that you got to work on with Elvis and the attractions was recording Walking on Thin Ice. Elvis yes. invited to record a song for Every Woman Has a Man Who Loves Her, which was the collection of Yoko Ono songs performed by other artists. And right. this track, Elvis, the attractions, you guys, and Alan Toussaint, sounds yeah. a fantastic setup to get that track down. That must have been great to be a part of. That was it. Was it was fantastic? Yeah, it's the only time we worked with Alan Toussaint. That was really great. It was and part of the tour. We were in New Orleans, so we got a chance to do that, and so we had you know spent a couple of days there. It was time to do that Alan Toussaint studio. I mean, what an amazing, what an amazing producer he is. It's quite incredible. I mean, we you know went in to do the brass and like. Like, you know, I'm quite sure Big Jimmy's tall, and like we go in there, and there's four microphones set up, and all, they're all the right height for us already. <laughs> Hello, gentlemen, come on into the studio. So we walk in there, and say, so just play through the arranging. We, we knew the arrangement, we sat and worked that out before. Um, and uh, so I played through it, and, you know, I just uh, banged it down. They said, Thank you, gentlemen. I said, Don't you want to double track that? He said, I've already done it. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just, it just so amazing. He was such a great guy, and it was just so, I don't know, just so smooth and just everything done so well. And it's a great sound. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just someone that I suppose in their studio, and, and they have, you know, have such a history of like the music he's, he's produced and has come out of there. And there's no farting around, there's no messing about, and everything comes out sounding absolutely beautiful. Yeah. He always seems like a real gentleman, Alan Tucson, as well. Oh, Is that how you found him? He's an absolute gentleman. Yeah, he was an absolute gentleman. Have you ever read Elvis's book? I have Elvis's book. I haven't read. I'm, I'm dipped in and out of it. Right. I haven't read. I haven't read through it. No. 
Oh, there's a nice comment from him um, about those sessions and having you guys on it when he says, the horn section was from Birmingham, and I don't mean the one in Alabama, but by the time Alan had dictated the rest of the horn parts, you'd have never guessed that this was a team of Brummies rather than his regular crew. They were all speaking his language. That's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't a bunch of Brummies. Um, <laughs> nothing wrong with Brummies. <laughs> No, absolutely. Um, and as part of that process, did you did you have any engagement with Yoko apart uh, around the track? Did you ever meet her as part of that? <laughs> yes. Uh, I a funny story. We did meet her. She absolutely loved the track, and she had a party for us in San Francisco. And we went up to her apartment. It was big, like spread laid out and everything like that. And Sean was there, and he was like, I don't know, he was really young at the time. I don't know how old, but like a tot, you know. Real, real young kid, maybe five, something like that, six. So playing around with him, I think I almost got shot with, because um, we were joking around, and there was you know, bodyguards there I didn't really, you know, notice. And I think, you know, I'm going, I'm going to chuck you over the balcony, because we were sort of chugging around, and there was a guy with sort of 45 coming out of his face, or something like that. But yeah, so she, she really loved it, I know that. So then you, you were back out on the road because you spent a good part of, uh, of 1983 on the road, didn't you? Where would you sort of place that among your touring highlights? Because, I mean, you've played with God, so many people and in so many great bands over the years. Where would you put the attractions tour with everything else? Um, absolutely one of the absolute highlights. Um, in, in many ways, the best tour I've been on. I mean, it's, you know, some of it, there's other ones that are like very, very special for different reasons, you know, and I, um, the Elvis Costello thing was much more, you know, on a session basis, but it was absolutely brilliant tour. Whereas, of course, other things have been more personal to us in ways that it was our own music, more of our own music. So, but yeah, it was, it was absolutely one of the highlights. Mm. And then Langdon Win Stanley uh, stay on board to do Elvis's next album, Goodbye Cruel World. Was there ever any possibility that you guys might stay on for that one as well? No, no. And, and we knew, I say, we knew that right, right from the start. Um, we knew it was going to be, you know, we, we signed on for the year. And again, that goes, that goes with Elvis's thing about, you know, wanting to do, he would never do two albums like in a row with something yeah. like that. It just wouldn't make sense to his way of thinking. Yeah. And what about in the years since then? Have you followed Elvis's career? Have you, do you keep in touch personally or anything like that? Um, yeah, I'm not following his career that closely, but I've, you know, I've met him, bumped into him a few times in you know, festivals. We've said hello, stuff like that. Yeah. I used to live like a villain in a wonderland. I've overheard it said that I've been on the hand. You worked with Elvis again in a later session after that as well when he was producing for the Nick Lowe and his Cowboy Outfit album and the track was Love at First Sight. Um, right. What do you remember of doing that and how did that come about to work on that one? Um, we were doing just, you know, a lot, a lot of people when they do albums like think maybe one song would use horns and that was a case like that. It was just the one album, one tune on the album that wanted the horns. So I guess, yeah, Elvis, I don't know who decided they wanted the brass, but we got to do it. 
helps reduce that. We did a lot of other sessions, you know, around that time, different people. Often it would just be the one, you know, the one song on the album that wanted horns on it, you know. Mm. Like David and Tour wrote the fix, bunch of people. I mean, we weren't, we were probably in and out of there in like a couple of hours doing that one song. You know, it doesn't take long. Mm. At least you hope it doesn't, you hope it doesn't take long. <laughs> if it doesn't take long, things are usually working well. If it takes all day, things are not working well. Yeah. And how about Elvis Costello in the producer's chair? What was that experience like? Again, but it's fine, you know, quick. Instead of, you know, in there we knew what, he knew what they wanted us to do and just played the, you know, just played the one tune, so it was pretty easy. Mm. We had quite a lot of producers' credits, didn't he, in those early days with uh, obviously the specials and he produced one of Clive Langer's own songs, uh, stuff for Nick Lowe as well. Um, is it difficult to separate your musician's head from your producer's head? Yes, I, w- I would say it is. And I think I think that's important for a lot of people to realise that, you know, trying to do music themselves. And Elvis would produce other people, but he'd always have someone, he'd always have a producer for himself. Mm. Um it's, it's interesting like that. You need somebody that can see the woods of the trees. You know, it's, I think you, can, you should never try and produce yourself. And I know, and I know, without naming names, people that have made that mistake. Yeah, it's been a great folly. Yeah, you need that second pair of eyes or second pair of ears is more useful. Well, actually, yes, isn't it? yeah, you do. You do. And I, I, say, I say it's like often yourself. You can't see the woods of the trees, sort of thing. And you, you need, you need that. Um, because you're so much in your own head when you're making your own music, you need somebody. You need that outside point of view. You need to, to feel like how that is. You bounce that off somebody else. How that is coming across another person. How you know the outside world is seeing it without whatever tint you have in your own head, head about it. Of course, inevitably, uh, you're going to have that kind of like tint. You're never going to see your own work in the way somebody else is going to see it. Mm-hmm. If I can bring us full circle and back to Punch the Clock, when was the last time you listened to the record? Oh, God. <laughs> well, I actually put it at play um, quite a while ago, but it, it's, I don't know. I, I don't listen to, to stuff like that so much, you know, like play stuff that I've been on and stuff that I've done particularly. Um, probably more the odd track or something will come up now and then, or... Um, well, I, you know, I've sort of made compilations of things or I've sort of used on track. But when I, last time I actually played the record, you know, a few years ago now. <laughs> because again, you know, again, this is, you know, life's gone, a lot of years have gone by since then. And, and in my, from my point of view, a lot of music since then as well. So I'm always, always doing something else, always thinking about what I'm going to be doing next rather than what I've done before and such, you know. And that was like a... It's a wonderful time and uh, it was great. I'm very, very, you know, very proud to have done it and been a part of it and very pleased. And, you know, thanks, Elvis. You know, had a great, great time and all that. But there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then as well, which is why my memory can be a little foggy about something. <laughs> I didn't do any homework for this. Sorry, Stu, but I didn't do any homework. It's just off the top of my head. Oh, no homework here. That's absolutely fine. Um, so, how do you feel about the record? At- several decades removed from it now because you you've made so much music over the years is it you know is it something you you're particularly fond of in your back catalogue it is no it really is something i'm very fond of um because yeah it's in a sense it, it's something like it, one one thing's from from a personal point of view it took me somewhere where i might not have gone 
Like, if, you know, there's some, like Elvis coming to us and saying, like, come and do an album with us and do touring with us. It's, it's not an angle I might have sort of thought of in my own head, particularly, to, to sort of meld with, with, with some of his music or, or some music of that ilk, if you like. You know, and so it was a really good thing. I think it broadened my mind, certainly. And it was uh, it was a fantastic tour, absolutely, you know, fantastic time on it. So, so it was a very special time. I mean, it's an absolute fondness for that album, and always will have. And I think it's a really great album. And I, I'm not so sure Elvis thought it was such a great album right after we've done it, but I think he realised this now it's a lot better than I think he thought it was at the time. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, let's close on Punch the Clock by looking at a line I took from a review from The Face in 1983. They said, the TKO horns and aphrodisiac backing deliver the kind of sucker punch that elevate all the songs to another dimension, which is a nice a nice feather in the cap, I think. It is very nice, yeah. Very <laughs> nice. Brilliant. And what about you now? You've obviously relocated back over here. You've got, you know, new music yeah. out. What are your plans over the, you know, as much as we can all make plans in a fairly uncertain world? Well, what, yeah, what right, are your right, plans? Now, right, now, right now, my plans are to stop eating off a cardboard box instead of a <laughs> coffee table, you know, and stuff like that. But musically, I'm not, I mean, you know, I've just, just, we just released a new album with the Samsung Like Gypsies, which is our second album. Um, as to what comes next, I don't know. I'm not quite sure at the moment, but uh, I'd like to get some mileage out of that. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very proud of this album. I'm very, very proud of this album. This the new Sounds Like Gypsy set. Check it out, people. I mean, um, personally, it's unlike so much of what I've done in the past. I mean, whether it was Elvis, whether it was Dexys, um, the Bureau, it's like horn section stuff, and a lot of, you know, my satisfaction came from arranging those ones so this is very much different this is me as a solo sax player on, on stuff and you know no sections and nothing like that so something that i've really enjoyed doing and very different brilliant and it sounds great wish you all the best with the new record jeff and whatever you uh, decide to do next musically right and, and it's called oh it's called i need a sunny day which we do we we do yes. Sitting here in Cornwall actually for the past couple of weeks, I could need, could use a sunny day. But I love it here. If it's raining here, it's, it's still a beautiful place for it to be raining. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great, Jeff. Thanks very much for coming on and and giving up your time just to have a chat with us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Stu. Thank you, Jeff. You can find out more about what Jeff's up to at jeffblythe.com on Instagram and as at sax officer on Twitter. His latest record with the Samsonite Gypsies, I Need a Sunny Day, is out now. Thanks for listening in. You can follow and get in touch on Twitter, Instagram and at dangerousamusements.co.uk. The theme music for the podcast is performed by Gary Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to Dangerous Amusements, sending you our love and vicious kisses.